Let's take our Bibles today and turn back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. Some of you might remember, and others might have seen it on YouTube or whatever, but one of the greatest athletic events, I, I believe, the most, one of the most courageous, uh, rememberable events that ever took place in sports took place in 1996. It took place at the Olympics, the uh, gymnastics for the women. A little gal who weighed 80 pounds, was 4 foot 8 inches tall, 18 years old, by the name of Carrie Strug, was uh, involved with the uh, Olympic team. They called them the Magnificent Seven, seven great athletes who, uh, for the first time in decades, America had the chance to take home the gold in, in women gymnastics. They were ahead of the Russians by just a little bit, but they needed to stick one more vault to be able to win the prize. Unfortunately, the superstars, and Carrie wasn't one of the, of the major stars. She was a good one, but she wasn't one of the major three. But the superstars all faltered. They all fell. And Carrie was the last person up. She had two vaults to be able to get a high score to win the tournament and get the gold. She did her first vault, and she was an expert at vaulting, and she fell too. Not only did she fall, but she tore two ligaments in her ankle, and the bones went out of place on that ankle for a little bit, and tore those ligaments. Uh, she now had to, 30 seconds to decide if she wanted to try another vault on a, bro- on a leg that was terribly wounded. She crawled off the, the mat, and her coach says, you have to do this. You have to try. So she decided to try. All the world watched as this girl they knew was wounded, could hardly walk, got at, got at the end of the runway and began to run. She barreled down that runway, hit the vault, went up over at the top, and landed perfectly on both feet. And then she grabbed her, her, her leg, went up, and she twirled around and did the thing they do. And then she collapsed on the stage and had to be carried off. She had done something that was magnificent, unbelievable. She had won the prize, and she did it with one leg. And we look back at people like that, and we say, they, they deserve our our um, admiration, they deserve our congratulations. They're, she suddenly became a superstar, that'll, and that'll be around forever because of that moment. But when we think of the spiritual life, we sometimes plug that back in, and maybe we shouldn't. We think that the way to become a, this great Christian is to be able to, to be like Carrie, and we just work, go through the, no matter how much we're hurt, no matter how much we're struggling, we just work, work extremely hard until finally... Uh, we are victorious. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying it's possible for you to go through all the motions, for you to get even frantic about all that you're doing, and yet really not know Jesus Christ as you should, and not be living for him as you should. He calls us to press on, but he wants us to examine carefully our heart. It's different than sports. Sports is an external thing. It's mostly for our own glory or maybe the team's glory, but the Christian life is about Christ's glory. And it's through Christ's power, not our own. And so the author of Hebrews is concerned about this group of people. He's concerned that some of them are self-deluded. Some of them are very frantic about their Christian participation, but they don't know Christ. Others are are going through the motions, but they're, they're falling backwards and are getting dull and sluggish in their Christian walk. He's very concerned about this group of Christians. We don't know if it's one church or several churches. It's mostly made up of Jewish believers uh, somewhere in that first century, but we do know that this is a group of people that were not moving forward with Christ, 
And so the author of Hebrews is concerned about that. And as he writes uh, in this section of of Hebrews chapter 6, starting with verse 9, uh, he is going to be talking to two different groups of people, and he varies his, his uh, writing, what he's having to say, his message, depending on what group he believes he's talking to. The first group that he, is, that, that he perceives he's talking to are those that he are, is convinced know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we come to verse 9 and 10, and what we, we see a real switch right here in the text. If you've been with us for the last three weeks, going back to chapter 5, verse 11, Uh, He's barely been sticking it to them. He's been really pushing them, telling them they need to step forward, they need to press forward, they become dull and sluggish. He's even questioned many of their salvations, and he's been talking about that from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8. And then he changes directions in verse 9, and he kind of lets up, and he says this, But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So he's talking, first of all, about these people that he calls the beloved. He is convinced that the majority of his congregation is saved. He thinks most of these people know Christ, and uh, because of that, uh, he is writing to them as his beloved, and he, he believes they know Christ. And he believes that they're saved because of a number of factors. Number one, and this is one we probably wouldn't pick out ourselves, but number one, uh, he is basing that on the character of God. He believes they know Christ, that they're truly saved because of the character of God. He says, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. He calls them beloved. Now, some translations translate this, dear friends, but I believe that's a mistake. Sixty different times in the New Testament, uh, that this word is used. It's always used to believers, never unbelievers. It is a, a word that speaks of someone we love deeply, someone who is, is truly and uh, that we truly care about. It's the beloved, and you know what that is. You know when when you love somebody, how important that is. I, if your iPhone is like mine, I pick it up once in a while to do something on it, and uh, my my phone starts showing me pictures. You know, it's got this collage of pictures of people that I love. And so it shows up, says, here's a collage of 10 pictures concerning your grandkids or somebody else, you know. And inevitably, no matter what I'm going to do, I stop. And I watch those pictures because those are people I love. Now, if your picture was coming up, I may not stop. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, if it's the grandkids, if it's the grandkids, it's all over. I'm going to look. They're, They're beloved. They're my beloved. And so he speaks of these people who are, who are beloved here. He calls them, I love you people. I consider you uh, those that I, con- I love deeply. I'm convinced of better things about you, things that accompany salvation. Now, why does he believe that they are those that have salvation? Well, like I said, because of the character of God, he says this, for, verse 10, For God is not unjust. Now, as we just look at that one phrase for a moment, he's, he's taking us back to say this, and we looked at this last week, so a little bit of a review. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then He will do what He says He will do. He will save you from your sins. 
Romans chapter 10 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you truly call upon His name in faith alone, turning from your sins, He will do exactly what He promises to do. And not only that, but He promises to keep us saved. In Philippians chapter 1, He, he promises that. Matter of fact, there's whole ver- many verses, and I can send those to you if you need them. But there's so many verses in Scripture that talks about the Lord Himself keeping us saved. Here's the picture of the New Testament. We are kept saved not on the basis of our own perseverance. It's not like the athlete who perseveres, as wonderful as that is. We are, our salvation is secure because the Lord makes it secure. He does the persevering. He is the one that, that has promised to do what he's promised to do, and he'll keep it. He is not unjust. He'll do that which he claims that he will do. And so if we placed our faith in Christ, he will save us from our sins, and he will keep his word that we will never perish, and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. That's great news. And so he's pointing them back to Christ. If you are wavering, and we'll get to this in a moment, if you're wavering about your certainty of your salvation, uh, let me say this. It is the Lord who saves you. It is the Lord who keeps you, and not you yourself. If you believe that you're saved on the basis of faith, come to him by faith, but you are kept saved on the basis of your good works, then you're basically believing in salvation by works. Our salvation is is placing our faith in Christ. He promises to keep us saved. That should be great news for us. Robert Louis Stevenson liked a little story of a a ship that was in in bad uh, storm and near the rocks, and the sailors down below were getting panicky. They thought they were going to perish. And one of the sailors couldn't stand anymore, so he went upstairs where the captain was uh, navigating the ship, and he looked at the captain, the captain turned around and looked at him and smiled. And he went back downstairs and he said, we're okay. They said, how do you know we're okay? Because I saw the face of the captain and he smiled. I can trust him. Well, I don't know if I can trust the captain or not, but I can trust the Lord. And if I can place my faith in him, if I can trust him, that is my security. That's where it rests. Now, let me say this, though, before we press on. There are two extremes in this area of are being kept by the Lord. One extreme is what we call Arminianism. Arminianism teaches that you can be saved on whatever basis those particular people believe, but at the same time you can lose your salvation if you sin badly enough or if you doubt badly enough, and then you can lose your salvation. Now, under the big umbrella of Christianity, if we include everybody who claims the name of Christ under all all rubrics whatsoever. There's about two billion of them. Now we know there are not nearly that many people that know Christ, but under that umbrella of, of Christianity, there's about two billion people. The vast majority, probably 80% of those or 90% of those, would believe you can lose your salvation. Now I'm not saying all those people are saved or even understand what they're talking about, but most believe they can lose their salvation. They believe there comes a day if they sin a mortal sin, they lose it and have to be saved again or something. Or they believe they can come to a place of doubting and they can come to the place of losing their faith in that way. We can give it up. And that's known as Arminianism. It's not taught in Scripture. And and as I said before, there's so many passages that says God does the keeping, not us. And therefore, we're secure. There's the other extreme, though, and this is a, what I would call extreme Calvinism. Uh, this is the view that was taught by Augustine, believe it or not, back in the fourth century. 
uh, he believed that the, that the evident, uh, the uh, condition for salvation was perseverance. Not the evidence, but the condition. That means this. If you lack perseverance, if you falter along the way, then you were never saved. So anyone who falters is not saved. Uh, first time I ran into this was several years ago. I was going to a conference, a very strong uh, Calvinistic preacher who I agree with on so many things. But on this particular sermon, it was all about uh, assurance of salvation. And here, listen, how you can never be sure you're saved until you take your last breath. And so you spend your whole life thinking you're saved, thinking you're living for the Lord and all these kinds of things. But you don't know until you actually die whether or not you persevered. And I walked away heartbroken over that idea. What a sad thought that we could spend our whole life thinking we're saved and, and meeting the conditions found in Scripture for salvation and yet come to the very end on our deathbed bed and somehow do something wrong or, or jettison the faith or whatever and lose it and we will never know, this guy says, until we take that last breath. Now, I reject that entirely. That is not what the Scripture teaches. But there's a brand of, of, of Calvinists that would teach exactly that, and that's kind of scary. In both cases, then, we have people who don't know they're saved. If you don't know you're saved, you'll never move forward in the faith. So our author takes us back in verse 10 and says, God is not unjust. When you have placed your faith in him, he will keep his word. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he does the keeping. If you've met the condition of faith alone, in Christ alone, then he will save you from your sins. And he's promised that. There's another reason why he is confident that these people know Christ. And that is because he's seen the, the fruit of their lives. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. No one can know your heart but God, right? So I can't look out here and with, with, with absolute perfection know your relationship with Christ. God knows, you should know, but I can't possibly perfectly know. But there are evidences of salvation. And those evidences he's pointing to in this passage. Go back to chapter 10, verse 32, for just a second, where he kind of details this. He keeps circling on these same themes. But in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. I saw this evidence in your life. I mean, they were willing to give up their possessions for the cause of Christ. I mean, today that's a hard thing for Americans. Us wealthy Americans who have been so pampered with all we have to think that I could lose all my possessions, my 401k, my house, all my stuff... For the cause of Christ, that's a high price. These people were willing to pay that price because they knew they had a better possession. So he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. He has seen in their lives the evidence of Christ in them. But, they, but we do see them backtracking. So what do we do with this? 
What do we do with people that are backtracking? What do we do with people who seem to be believers but they're cooling off? What do people do? Well, some of them in chapter 10 here, going back up to uh, verse 24 and 25 that we'll get to later, some of them were actually stopping fellowshipping with one another. They stopped coming to church. They had cooled off to the place now that they were de-churching. You know, they were moving away from the church. They didn't see the need for the church. And he gets on them saying, you do need one another far more than you think you do. That's a mistake to do that. Others grimly just press on. They grit their teeth and press on and try their best to, uh, to get through it. But they're not really enjoying being together. They're not jo- enjoying going forth with Christ. So what does the author tell us to do as we go back to our passage? He's calling throughout this whole section for us to examine our lives and make sure that they know Christ and make sure they're going in the right direction. And his great concern is found backing up to chapter 5, verse 11. They've become dull of hearing. And in chapter 6, verse 12... He says, so that you may not become sluggish. The word sluggish is the same word as dull in the Greek. They had become lazy. They had become insipid. They had become dull. They become sluggish. And he's calling on them not to, do, not to be that way at all. Because this is going to cause great problems in their life. Now let me say this as we, before we look at the next thing. Uh, when we think today, you know, what, what should we do if we're struggling in pressing on? If we're, we're, we know we're saved. So that's who he's talking to right now. We know we know Christ. But um, we're struggling moving forward. We're sluggish. We're dull. What should we do? Now, today we, we talk a lot about, you know, accountability. Uh, we want to we read our Bibles. We ask somebody to make, keep us accountable. We want to come to church. We ask people to keep us accountable. We want to overcome a habit. We ask for accountability. Now, I'm not against that. So please catch that first. Accountability is often helpful. And this passage talks, this whole section, this whole book, talks about the need for one another, to encourage one another, to, to, uh, maybe to hold each other accountable. But there's something deeper here, folks, I want us to look at. And that is the heart. Why do you need to be held accountable for something you love? Is that something that actually happens? I mean, quite frankly, I don't need to be held accountable to eat ice cream. I've never asked any of you to make sure you call me every night at 9 and make sure I've finished my bowl of ice cream. I don't need that. If I go to St. Louis next week, I'm not going to ask any of you to keep me accountable to stop off at White Castle. I don't need that kind of accountability because I, I love my White Castles. You know, it's good for my health. Um, I think it's the secret to the good health I've had over the years is ice cream and White Castles and, and potato chips. I don't need anybody to keep me accountable for these things because I love these things. And nobody has to keep me accountable to read. I love to read. Some of you are into guns. You like to shoot guns or you like to go hunting. Nobody has to say... I'm going to keep you accountable to go hunting this year. Even though you're going to go out there and freeze yourself half to death. You're going to get gangrene in your toes. You're not going to even see a duck or a deer. I've seen more deers on the side of the road than most of you hunters have seen in five years. Right? Uh, but nobody has to say, you've got to go hunting this year or you're just not a good hunter. Why? 
Because we do instinctively what we love. I've loved a lot of things that I don't love anymore. And I don't do them anymore. Because I don't love them anymore. But if I love them, I do them. And so although I do believe definitely we need one another. This whole book's about that. And we need to encourage one another when we're struggling. I think when we start getting sluggish, we need to look back at our heart. We will follow and do that which we love. And if you're not, there's something wrong with what you love. There's something wrong in the heart. And go back and look at that. I'm not trying to be harsh here, but I want you to realize it goes from the inside out. You must go back and look at that which is important. And so if you're following the direction of some of these people, you're saved but you're not moving forward, then let me encourage you to go home this afternoon, take a good look at your heart, take a good look at what you love, and realign that with Christ. It said, you know, in in Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus, that they had left their first love. That was their one big problem. They had left their first love. Maybe you've left or you're leaving that great love that you once had. Let me encourage you on that. But it's going to chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He looks at a different audience here. And these he has doubts about their spiritual condition. In verses 11 and 12, he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a far richer text of Scripture than maybe on the surface it looks like. So let's kind of dig our way through this. In verses 9 and 10, he's been talking to the believers. In verses 11 and 12, I think he's talking to those he doesn't know whether or not they know Christ. And he tells them in verse 12, you need to imitate those who have faith and patience in the things of God. You need to imitate them. The implication is that this group either did not have faith or the and were not saved, or if they were saved, they didn't have, notice the verse here, the assurance of hope. The assurance of hope. Now, now, let's back up a little bit. There's a great deal of difference between being secure in Christ, what we sometimes call eternal security, and assurance of your faith in Christ. Two different things. You can be secure in Christ and not have assurance. And there's a lot of Christians who fit that category. If you're secure in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, He is just and able to save us from our sins. And He has done what He's promised to do. Theologically, we, the picture is like this. The Lord, God, the Father, has taken us sinners, placed us in Christ shut the door behind us so that no one can get in there and take it away and you can't get out either and sealed the door with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 and 4. So that no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. No one can take away your salvation. Not even you yourself. That's the promise of God. That's a great promise. That's security. Security in Christ. But there's a great deal of difference between that and assurance of Christ. First, we have to start with, are we sure we are meeting the conditions of salvation? Are we, are we resting in that which God says we have to do to come to Him for salvation? 
Warren Wiersbe tells a, a little story in, in one of his commentaries in 1 John on a guy called the human fly. Back years ago, when they allowed this without being taken to jail, uh, people used to climb up skyscrapers or climb up monuments, and, and crowds would come and cheer, and this one guy did it so often they called him the human fly. But one day the human fly was up on a building, and he reached up for a piece of mortar and pulled away and fell to his doom on the sidewalk below. When they opened up his hand, he, all he had was an old cobweb, no mortar, just a cobweb. He re- rested his, his security in something that couldn't hold him. So we start with the fact that we are secure in him. Do we know him? Have we placed our faith totally in him by, by faith alone? Have we trusted in that? If so, he says here, in verses 11 and 12, I want you to have the full assurance of hope. I want you to know that you 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 know. How about that? I heard a preacher do that once. I didn't think he was ever going to stop. So I, I remember memorized. That was hard to memorize, you know. But, but I got it down. Okay, so do you, do you have that? Do you know that you know that you know? And if, but he, as he goes on here, I want you to know that. I want you to have that. Here's the problem. As I said earlier, they had become sluggish. They had become sluggish in verse 12. I don't want you to be sluggish. I don't want you to be dull. What do you do when, you, when you've lost the zip of the Christian life? When, when you've cooled down and you don't have that enthusiasm that perhaps you had at one time. And, you're, and you know what happens? Let me tell you this. As a pastor for so many years now, as I watch people who have backed away from Christ in this way, who have lost their enthusiasm, many of them will begin to doubt their salvation. Because they don't see the evidence that they once saw of Christ in their life. And one of those first steps towards that direction is the indifference to the Word of God. You just don't care what God has to say. And so he's talking here, he speaks to them about life. Do you have life? Do you have, if, you, if you have a tree in your yard that hasn't put forth leaves in two years, what do you think? You think it's dead? I mean, you can fertilize it if you want to, and you can water it if you want to. You can prune it, but it's dead. We have some neighbors a couple years ago on both sides of us that had dead trees for two years. One of them had a deciduous tree that hadn't had leaves for two years. Behind us were somebody had evergreen trees that turned brown for two years, hadn't had one evidence of life. And I said to Marcia several times, do you think they believe in the resurrection of the dead when it comes to trees? You know, um, they're just not going to come back. They're dead. And so when you look at your life and you see deadness uh, there, then there's good reason to doubt, I suppose. You need to see life in your life. And so we need to inspect our hearts for the evidence of Christ there. On the other hand, if we're truly saved, but have allowed ourselves to become sluggish and dull, then what can we do about that? First of all, I want you to note, going back to this verse, when he says, we'll not be sluggish, in verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish. That is in the middle voice. The middle voice is a unique voice in the Greek that basically means it's something you've done to yourself. We live in the great victimization of, the, of, of America. We're all victims of somebody, right? And reading the book that I'm reading on the great de-churching, uh, the, uh, the 40 million Americans who've dropped away from church over the last few years 
almost every single one of them blames somebody else except themselves. They blame their church, they blame their family, they blame their parents, they blame virtually everything except themselves. That's, uh, that's the American dream, right? You can blame somebody else for what you've done. He's not going to let us do that in Scripture. This is in the middle voice. You are responsible for your own sluggishness. In other words, don't let yourself become spiritually dull and lazy and blame it on other people. If you're under a spiritual struggle and things aren't going well and you're beginning to doubt God, what should you do? Let me encourage you practically, read the Psalms. Go back and read the Psalms. I'm doing it again right now myself. Look at the circumstances many of the psalmists were in, the difficulties of life, and yet they turn to God during these times. They don't pull away. Trials often draw us closer to him anyway. But notice specifically what he says to do. So that, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He calls us to be imitators, and at first that doesn't seem to make much sense. The imitator can be a hypocrite. You know, fake it to you to make it type of thing. Just go through the motions. He's not calling for that. He's calling for us to look at those who uh, have set uh, the agenda for us, who have gone before us, and imitate that type of people. If you've ever had a little girl, you know they want to imitate their mother. They'll run around the house in high heels and a purse and whatever else. They want to be like mama. Why? Because they like mama. They love mama. They want to be like their mother. To the unbeliever then in his audience, they need to, to focus on their faith. They should ask, do I have that faith in Christ? But to the weary, stumbling Christian, he's saying to them that they need to look around and imitate those around them who have walked the battle. Look, we're not the only people who have lived the Christian life. We're not the only people that have gone through the ups and downs of Christian living. We're not the only people that have gotten weary in well-doing at times. Many have gone before us, and we need to look to them. Those people, however, endured, and so we should look at those examples. Now, what examples should we look at? Verses 13 to 20 that we'll look at next week is the example of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the, of the Jewish people. Abraham was the beginning of the other. He was one of the great, uh, the, big, the big three of the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, and David. Look to him, he said. I'm going to give you an example of that. We'll look at it next week. But in verse 12, he speaks of those who have inherited the promises in this passage of Scripture. In other words, he is, he's calling us to look not only at the past, but also at those who are living saints right now. Three tenses here. In a sense, the past, the past, and the present. The very deep past, so here we are, three different groups that we should look at in our weariness, in our struggles. Number one, the past in the biblical characters. Now if you think, if you've got the idea that there are a certain subset of Christians who never get weary, who never struggle, who never get down... I've got news for you that there's no such people that exist. And the scriptures tell us that very plainly. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that there's almost no major characters in all the Bible that did not have some flaws. As people have said, the Lord 
paints the portraits of his people in the Bible with warts and all. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't airbrush it. Have you seen uh, Martha Stewart on TV? There's something going on there. That's not natural, you know. <laughs> we, God doesn't do that with his, with his people. God, God doesn't take us uh, and say, here's a perfect person, follow him. Only Jesus did that was perfect. And so almost every character in the, in the Bible had flaws, but they endured. They moved forward. We, we look at some of those characters. We think of Abraham, who was this great beginner of the Jewish people, but Abraham threw his wife under the bus twice. We think of Moses, the great leader of Israel. What a job he had in front of him. Forty years of putting up with these rebellious, stinky people. And yet he did it. And yet one day he got so proud and took the glory to himself so much and got so angry that God said you will not be allowed to go into the promised land. And then there's David. Nobody in all the Bible is portrayed such as David as man after the heart of God himself. And yet we know the great flaw, the great sin of David and with Bathsheba and all that went with that. We look at Elijah. Remember Elijah? He stood up against a whole nation with, against hundreds of prophets. And he stood like a giant, like a, like a rock. And he, he shouted them all down. He won the day. And little Jezebel started squeaking and he ran for the, his life. And he ran and hid in a, in a cave and got depressed. There, that's what it is, folks. But every one of them got back up. Every one of them turned back to Christ. Every one of them confessed their sins and, and asked forgiveness and moved forward. Look at David, Psalm 51. Those are examples for us. Not perfection. Only Jesus is the perfect one. But these biblical examples, they help us so much. Read them. Look into them. Study them. But then there's other examples of Christian saints in the past. Many of us know very little about church history. And that's why periodically we have somebody here at our church who knows church history well to teach a course on it. And it's very helpful to look at people. Believe it or not, some of you, the only, there, there were more than one or two great saints in the 1800s. Spurgeon and, and uh, a few others were not the only true saints in the 18, 1800s. There were tens of millions of them that followed Christ. Get to know a few of them. Find out more than just one guy. There's a whole bunch more who followed the Lord. Find out a little more about their lives. If you want a little help on that, I can't encourage you enough to do yourself a favor this year. Instead of buying shoelaces for those boots you're going to throw away, buy a book. I know you're not going to do that. Buy a book called Walking with the Giants by Warren Wiersbe. He'll take you back through a whole catalog of saints in the past who walked with God through all sorts of difficulties. It's a delightful book, an encouraging book, and there's others like that. But more than that, look at your own life. Look back at those you have admired and those that helped you. Don't take them for granted. I look back to my youth as a child and saw patient people putting up with a, with a squirrely little boy that wanted to act up a lot and who loved me and taught me and modeled for me. I, I see people when I went to college People now that I do not remember their names, sadly, who in heaven will know that they were responsible for much of my life because they showed me the way and they had patience with me and they taught me and they loved me. I had a pastor down there who was just a simple guy in a simple church who just loved the Lord with all of his heart. I never forgot such a man. What an example 
he was for me. When I went to Moody, there were teachers and there were students, there were friends, there were people who truly were examples of Christ's likeness that encouraged me and helped me. In my life as a pastor throughout the years, there have been people who now are no longer with us. I think back over all these years, there's hundreds and hundreds of saints who have now gone on to be with the Lord. Who I look back and, and they were not perfect people, but they were people that loved Christ and followed Christ. Go back and look. Thank the Lord for people that cared for you. Those Sunday school teachers that put up with you. Those uh, youth leaders that, that handled you even when you shouldn't have been handled. And handled you with love. Those pastors and leaders and, and, and parents. Pray for your parents. You'll, you'll appreciate it more when you have your own kids. Right? Your parents, what they've done for you. But he's not done. He's talking about the present saints. Look around at the present saints. He says, again, these are not perfect people. The more you get to know somebody, the more you know they're not perfect, right? But these are people that love Christ, people that know him, people that set agendas for following Christ. Look around. You can look around now at some of these people. Look at the balcony people. They're always looking down on us. You know? <laughs> but, but we're not even sure what to do with the balcony people. Uh, we're not sure where they are with the Lord, but we love them anyway. Uh, so we have these, we have all, look, look, this is more important than you think, and he gets to this in chapter 10. Honestly, turn your head to the right and left. Take a look. Not at the same time, you've got to do take turns, okay? Why in the world did 400 people or so get up this morning and come to church on a dreary rainy day to be here. Why did some of you get up and wrestle with your kids who you're not even sure are totally living as humans right now (laughs) and combing that hair and putting those clothes on and getting them stuffed in the car and getting them here to, to the nursery and whatever else you did. Why in the world did you do that? Are you nuts? I don't know who said that, but thank you. (laughs) We want to. Why do we want to? Because we love Christ and we love one another. And quite frankly, that 400 or so people jumped up this morning and came in here. Some of you look like you, didn't, you just got up. But <laughs> you're here. Is an encouragement to everybody. You, know, you might say, well, I, I don't, I'm not teaching a class today. I'm not doing much special. You're here. You're here and you're encouraging the souls of those around you because you're here. Look around. And he calls for that kind of thing right, right here in the lives of these people. And so we put it all together. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, I want you to press on to maturity. Stop the sluggishness. Don't stay where you are. Move forward. Look at your heart. Be encouraged by those around you who are following Christ, who also are working through issues just like you are. Don't be spiritually dull. Don't stay there. Keep moving forward. I want to pull it all together with a silly little illustration of a duck. Back years ago, the um, scientists decided they wanted to find out why ducks did what ducks do. That's that's what all scientists should do, spend their lives looking at ducks. And so they were trying to figure out why ducks were imprinted. And so they developed a, a, a little ring about six feet in circular, and they... They, they got a decoy that didn't really look like a duck at all. It was just an ugly little thing. They painted up a little bit. They gave it a little squawk. It didn't sound like a duck. 
and they put a little motor on it so it could move forward. And then they took little ducklings, brand new ducks, and put the little ducks behind them and set that thing moving. And the little ducks followed it like it was their mother. Just followed them right on down the line, right on around. Soon it, they thought this was mama. If they would take the decoy out, they did, they took the decoy out, and they brought another decoy in that looked like a mother duck. It sounded like a mother duck. It was much more mother duckly than the other one. And the little ducks wanted nothing to do with it. They had been imprinted to something else. The scientists discovered that if the little ducks were with one uh, decoy or anything else, for 16 hours, it would never again follow anything else but that decoy. 16 hours. Here's the good news, you're not a duck. Okay? Ducky maybe, but not a duck. You're not a duck. You're a human. You have choices to make. If you're a Christian, Christ lives in you. But it is amazing and disturbing sometimes how easy it is to get into bad habits. To, to, for our, our lives, the things we're doing, the people we're following, the people we're hanging with, the life that we're making, that becomes normal to us even if it's bad, even if it's destructive. We become extremely accustomed to being dull and sluggish if we are. Until after a while we think that is the Christian life. The Christian life is just this dullness, this, this going through the motion, this sluggishness. You're not a duck. You don't have to be imprinted by that. He tells us to move forward, to press on, to follow the imitation of those who followed Christ. So that we break those awful habits and those bad patterns and we move on to maturity because that's where Christ wants us to be and that's where we should be. And I hope you and I take that to heart. Father, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for setting the pattern before us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so many people here right now who love you, who follow you, who serve you. And Lord, we thank you for that, how encouraging we are to one another just to, just to be here. I'm so thankful for that, for that endeavor of so many people today. Some of it was, wasn't easy for some, and we're so glad they're here. Father, help us to move forward in maturity. Help us to love you with all of our hearts. In, in Jesus' name, amen.